Welcome to Decode Your Burnout, the podcast where we crack the code on burnout based on three primary factors, your programming, environment, and personality. We also feature experts who debunk the myths about what it takes to be successful in their industry and spin those tips to fit the workplace so you can optimize the way you work. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Grossman, a psychologist turned coach, author, and burnout expert. If you're burned out and want to go from exhausted to extraordinary, book a free breakthrough session with me by going to bookachatwithsharon.com. And if you want to see how you're doing and what to focus on next, download the burnout checklist. You'll find the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly forward slash check your burnout. Now let's get started. Hello, Decode, your burnout fans. Welcome to another episode with me, Dr. Sharon Grossman. And today I have Kristen Chris Patrick with me. She is a dietitian and manager of wellness nutrition services at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. She is the author of the best selling book, Skinny Liver, and she's been featured on everything from NBC Nightly News, PBS the Today Show to the Dr. Oz Show. So I am very, very excited to have her here today to help us really debunk the myths around what it means to eat healthy, something that we all want to do and something that we sometimes don't do, especially when we're busy, we're stressed out, there's just a lot going on in our lives. It tends to be the thing that we drop off from. So Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. Sharon. So excited to be here with you. Yeah. So I understand you have your own burnout story. So why don't we start with that? I'm going to give you the floor. Let us know really what happened for you. So I think that when I think about burnout, I think about the fact that I had one thing on my plate, which was maybe see patients, right? So simple. And then it just added from there. As I got older, I got married, I had kids, I moved. So I think that the more I put on the plate, the plate just became too full. And so what I have found from my own kind of burnout experiences is that once the plate is too full, you can't do everything on the plate to the top notch that you want to do. So you have to take a few things off or you have to prioritize what's the most important thing. So I think for me, Obviously, my family was a priority. All of those things were really important for me. Being a mom became more of a priority. And I just had to figure out, like, how do I still serve patients? How do I still serve the community, the people that were coming to me for dietary guidance? How did I still serve those individuals? And I think for me, it was really about taking less right? Because you can't take everything, put it on that plate and think that everything's going to work. So it was about maybe working with less clients, maybe working with less patients and being comfortable with that and really being able to serve those individuals at that time frame much more efficiently because I was able to kind of keep things on the plates and prioritize. And, you know, it's interesting because it almost sounds counterintuitive, where, you know, if I have so much going on, I have so many patients and I'm a mom and I have, you know, all the things that you had, how on earth can I do less? Right, right, right. Well, I think you have to look at kind of what's the priority. 
right? I mean, I realized that for me, when I start burning out, I kind of revert back to some of the reasons why I became a dietitian, which was very poor eating as a child, that type of thing. I'm eating more for emotion. I know we're going to talk about myths and things like that, but I think that sometimes we'll see the person who's helping us, whether it's you as a doctor helping someone or me as a dietitian, and just think that everything that they do in that field is perfect. But really the realization is that we are human and we have to figure out what really gets to the achievement point of our personal wellness and what that means. So I think we throw out that word and that concept wellness all the time. I hear it almost daily, right? I really want to focus on my wellness or I'm really passionate about wellness. What does that mean? So what does wellness mean for each and every individual? And for some people, it could mean that, okay, I'm going to look at what's the most important. I'm going to heighten those things and I'm going to take the things that are as important, but maybe I don't need to prioritize that right now. And I'm going to put that on the back burner. And so it doesn't mean the things on the back burner always have to stay on the back burner. They could come up to the front, but it's really about figuring out what your time limit looks like. You only have 24 hours in a day. So how do you make sure you're specifically taking care of yourself so that you can take care of your family, you can take care of your patients, et cetera. And it doesn't happen overnight, right? Dr. Sharon, I mean, you know, it takes quite a long time to figure that out. So I can't help but notice that there's so many metaphors here that are like food related. So we're talking about taking things off your plate and having things on the back burner, which I think is lots of fun. But ultimately, what you're saying is you have everybody has these busy lives. And in order for us to really have, quote unquote, wellness, whatever that means, right. um, especially if we were going to hone in under that umbrella specifically around healthy eating, then you have to make time for that. And that in, the, in other words, that becomes a priority. Right. And, right. The, and the way that you carve time out for that is by taking on less things outside of that. So if you have a hundred things that you're doing, like you're saying, maybe you run your own practice and you've got a lot of patients, maybe you see less patients and have more time outside of work to focus in on making those healthy meals or making sure that in some way, shape or form, you have time set aside for healthy eating. Right. And I think that can be challenging as well. And one of the things I tell my patients is to work as best as you can to cook more at home and to look at what all of those components look like, but not to feel shame or feel bad if you can't cook a huge healthy meal every single solitary night for your family. or if you're not making everything from scratch. You know, one of the things I always talk about is trying to look at real concepts for real people and real people are busy. Right? We always have to remember that like, oh my gosh, my schedule's so busy, I don't have time for this. You are the same as probably 10 people who you will interact with today as well. They're also very busy. So, you know, really kind of looking at what are things I can do? Can I get things that are more quick cook, that are less processed, that make more sense, that don't take as much time? Can I have a night where, okay, I'm not going to have time to cook, but what are my options look like outside of that? Where can I pick something else up that is a more nutrient dense? So I think like that goes into it as well. Like, yes, I want more time to cook more and to cook from scratch. But if that doesn't happen, and it won't all the time, because again, we're human, not feeling, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible mom, or I can't believe I'm such a bad dietitian. I hope no one has a camera right now seeing me you know, get food at a restaurant for something. Yeah. We are all human and we have to embrace that. 
Okay. So what I'm hearing you say is it really boils down to a couple of different things. One is there's got to be some sort of mindset shift around this idea of healthy eating. Because what I hear from a lot of my clients is, you know, the kind of what you were saying earlier, which is, you know, I'm so busy, I don't have time. And this really does require some time. So Mm -hmm. the first piece is really like that mindset shift of like, yeah, you're not going to have time unless you make the time. And this is actually something that you need to prioritize because it's important. Right. That's number one. Number two is getting away from the perfectionism of it has to be perfect. It has to be all the time. It has to be every day and basically being strategic. And how do I make the most of the time that I have? And maybe, as you said, maybe there's like a restaurant that has really great food, healthy food that I can get takeout from. So I don't have to necessarily cook every single day, but also like, I think it really requires on some level, people to have some structure in their day and not to wing it last minute. And this is right. something that we sometimes do, right? When we're super busy as we, we sure. go to work and then we're like, oh, well, I don't have time. So either I skip a meal or I eat really late or then I go and grab whatever is around. And we really need to be strategic about maybe planning your meals ahead of time and doing the grocery shopping. Or some people have those like, kits that they get delivered home. Right. Right. And so maybe you can speak to what are some of these hacks that people can utilize when they're short on time? Yeah. So I think number one, what has been really useful for my patients and really for myself as well is to figure out your, your kind of your grocery shopping mode. And what I mean by that is, okay, is your mode going to be, I'm going to get a kit in and that's going to take care of four nights of my week. Is your mode, okay, I'm going to go to the grocery store. And how often does that look like? Mm-hmm. So that's really, we, we oftentimes don't think about that, but that can make a really huge difference in overall planning. So I have patients, they go to the grocery store once a week, they do a huge shopping, they have a list, stick to the list, it works for them. I have other patients that go every day. So their inspiration comes in the morning when they're trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what's going to work. They go that day, right? So figure out what your mode is, right? That's all part of our planning. And we plan for so many things in life, but oftentimes when it's grocery shopping, it's like, oh gosh, I'm, you know, I really, I want to make this tonight. So I'm just going to run to the grocery store and try and find it. So what is that mode and how do you plan, right? So what I tell my patients is let's plan for at least three to four nights where we are actually cooking something in the kitchen. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty realistic for most people. We also have to look at this concept of our support system. So, so many of my patients will come to me and they will just say, well, you know, I'm here because I want to lose weight or I want to live healthy or I want to live longer. I know I got to eat better. So help me with that. Yeah, of course, eating better is a key component, but we have so much data now from the past two decades that show that there are concepts outside of your wish to eat better that could derail that or support that. So again, do you have small kids? Is that kind of hindering you from going to the grocery store? Bring them with you. Um, Do you have a spouse or a friend that's very supportive that maybe wants to go with you to the grocery store or maybe just help with the list, maybe just help with the prep? I have a nine-year-old sometimes who likes to help me on Sundays to chop things ahead of time. They're in the fridge. I just need to pull them when it's time to make dinner. So what does that mode look like? I think that's the first step in proper planning. Right. So you mentioned mode, grocery shopping mode, but also what you just mentioned is kind of the supports or the roadblocks and how to right. how to manage your way around those, which I think is really helpful and 
you know, as we're trying to think about, okay, if I was to take this on as a project and I really did want to make this part of my everyday living, how do I do that given the fact that I'm so busy or I'm so tired? And, you know, and sometimes it's just maybe I don't think I'm good in the kitchen and maybe I don't like my cooking or you right? So there's all kinds of obstacles around this that I'm sure you've probably heard all of them. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of obstacles. And so I think obstacles are things that we can turn into opportunities, really. So we're thinking about obstacles when you get a great one, which is like, oh, I'm not a great cook. So we don't have to be a great cook. I tell a lot of my patients, you don't have to be a gourmet chef, but you need to be a pretty good short order cook. So what are little things that you can put together that are pretty quick, but still spell out to being nutrient dense? Can you boil water and make some quinoa? If the answer to that is no, that's really challenging for me. I always screw it up. Then let's buy the quinoa in a pouch that we just microwave. Is it as ideal as making it fresh? No. But is it going to make a huge difference? Probably not, right? That's going to be about like reading the ingredients, making sure there's just quinoa in there, like all these components. So that's a great example of it. I'm going to take that pouch of quinoa. I'm going to put it in my microwave, 90 seconds, it's done. I'm going to bake a piece of chicken. I'm going to take some broccoli and put it on that baking pan. And then I'm going to put all of that together. That's a meal. So I think sometimes we think we have to make these grand things together. We see these grand meals being put together on social media or a cookbook. That's not realistic to everyone every day of the week. So simply making sure, okay, I'm getting a vegetable and I'm getting a whole grain in. What does that look like? And how quick can you do that? That sometimes takes the stress out and makes people feel more able to really provide something for their family. Yeah. So we mentioned that there's all kinds of obstacles. There's time obstacles. There's mindset obstacles. There's all kinds of things related to skill and what have you. But we often talk about healthy eating as almost like another thing I have to do. And now I'm even more stressed or I'm even more overwhelmed. And so that's not really helpful. But I also want to point out that for a lot of people, actually cooking dinner at home is one of the ways that they feel good. Yep. You know, it's kind of their self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We often yep. think of self-care as like meditation or I got to go for a right. run, but like sometimes just making dinner is self-care. Sometimes making dinner is self-care. That's such a great point. I remember this happened like a few weeks ago and I made this like huge meal on a Sunday night. And my husband was saying to me, he's like, man, I love these, but it takes so much time. Like, you know, you don't have to make something huge for me like that. And I remember thinking to myself, but this is like my meditation. I love being in the kitchen. I love being here and chopping vegetables. I love being here creating a sauce. I just love that moment. And so some people do look at that moment as, okay, this is great. And here's the tools I'm going to have in the kitchen so that I can do these things. So yeah, we have to look at what makes sense for us. And again, there's people that just hate cooking. I mean, I have plenty of patients like that as well. So what does that look like? And how do we kind of combat that? And those are the people that you might get the quinoa in the pouch, right? As opposed to boiling it or a lot of my patients, I suggest to go and start taking some cooking classes just mm-hmm. at some cooking stores. And so even if we start perfecting a few dishes, that gets them really excited and it gives them some ideas once they learn from a professional chef on how to do things. Yeah, I think there is a level of confidence that once you have it, that you know, you can rely back on it as a skill. You can just rinse and repeat. And 
And I think that's a really good feeling because now you have the tools to take care of yourself and your loved ones if you're the one in charge of meals. And kind of like you, I'm somebody who likes to keep it simple during the week. And then Friday is my big night where I I try to go above and beyond and make it really special. And, you know, while I look at cooking in general as some way that I take care of myself, I also look at preparing these meals as a way of taking care of my family. So I think there's a lot of values also that are spun into this whole idea of wellness through the lens of cooking and and healthy eating. So, I mean, we've touched on a whole bunch of areas so far. And I'm curious now, what are the biggest myths that really keep people from being able to engage in this way of wellness? Yeah. I think sometimes when we think about the myths and this engagement of wellness, this concept, I think a lot of people feel that in order to do it right, it's got to be perfect all the time. And that's just not going to be realistic. So one of the things I tell my patients is to, you know, simply take all the diets that are out there and there's a million out there, right? And take that out of the conversation for now and just start eating more food. So Michael Pollan defined food as something that comes from nature, was fed from nature and will eventually rot. Okay. So that's how he defines food. And so what I tell my patients is, you know, in the first few weeks of working with me, I just want you to spend 80 to 90% of your time eating food. That's going to be the key as opposed to following a diet. Because, you know, one of the huge myths is that, okay, we have the dietary guidelines and we have all these different dietary components that we see in cookbooks and online. And okay, I'm going to try that. And if that fails, I'm going to try another one. And if that fails and if that fails, et cetera. And so there is no one size fits all approach. I think sometimes if we take all of these huge amounts of detail and really simplify it and bring it down to its real core base, we need to eat more real food and we need to actually eat less of it. And I'm not saying we need to count calories or I'm not saying we need to starve ourselves or any of those things. Things like that don't work. When I'm saying eat less of it, I mean really tapping into your hunger and your hunger cues. We oftentimes do not listen to our hunger and I could give you a million examples. I, I had a patient yesterday and she's like, well, you know, I have lunch at noon and I stopped her and I said, well, why do you have lunch at noon? And she said, well, that's just kind of like one of the days, one of the times during the day where I have a break. I said, okay, but are you hungry at noon? Well, no, I'm not hungry, but it's noon, right? So she was eating because there was a clock that told her time to eat. That's not listening to our hunger. Or passing, I often give an example of my patient who said she had a bowl of nuts on her kitchen counter. And every time she passed it, she would take a few more, but she didn't have hunger, right? So when I'm saying let's eat less, I mean, let's eat what our body needs in order to fuel and let's eat more food. Let's start at that high level and then kind of twiddle it down to figuring out, okay, from that perspective, I think I would really like the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet or paleo or keto. Then we can start figuring out what the pattern looks like, but we need to start high level first. I love that. And I think that is actually a huge challenge for us because we are so externally focused, right? We're focused on work. We're focused on all the people we have to take care of. And so it's like, wait, so you want me to listen to my body? Right, right, right. But it's 12 o'clock. What do you mean? Right. And I I hear this a lot also with people who aren't 
aware of the whole, you know, intermittent fasting piece. So, you know, they're like, okay, well, what do you have for breakfast? And it's like, well, I don't have breakfast. I do intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, <laughs> it's kind of a novel concept because there is so much of a cultural influence in terms of our eating, like when right. we eat and how much we eat and how long we eat for. And, you know, we've gotten also into this place where if you're really busy, it's okay to eat at your desk and it's okay to just grab and go. And it's okay to like, you know, eat when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling upset, or, you know, we have all these things that lead us to eat and aren't necessarily listening to the hunger, as you put it. Right. And I, I think, you know, your example about intermittent fasting is a great one in this question of, okay, well, when do you have breakfast? Even the terms we give to our meals are somewhat obscure, right? I mean, obviously breakfast means breaking the fast, but it doesn't mean you have to have it the second you get up. That's right. So breakfast could look like lunch, right? So I think we have these these concepts in our head that breakfast is a bagel with cream cheese or it's eggs or it's toast. And then lunch is kind of a sandwich and then dinner, you know, so we have these concepts and it's like, well, let, let's get out of that and let's just look at what is speaking to us. Breakfast for me, breaking the fast for me could be at 10 o'clock, I am going to have a turkey sandwich or I'm going to have a salad with salmon, Right. That might not look like breakfast as we think about it in our culture, Mm -hmm. uh, but that could be how we break the fast. So really kind of diving down, it's diving down into a lot more detail, but really at the end of the day, it's making things a lot more simple. And I think that's a really important key concept is looking at how much of what you're doing is your programming versus you really doing what's good for you, right? Right. We do things on autopilot without even questioning them. And, you know, sometimes you'll meet somebody who's maybe from a different culture and they're maybe having eggs for dinner and you're like, eggs for dinner, right? Right. It's a breakfast item. And it's like, well, in some cultures, it's a breakfast item and other cultures, it's not, you know? And I think what we're saying here is there's an invitation to redo all of your decisions around food. Like you don't have to do it the way it's always been done. You don't have to do it the way everybody else is doing it. You listen to your body and you make decisions based on what's good for you. Right, right. And I think too, you know, if you look at concepts like the blue zones, right? I mean, these are communities that are living a lot longer than anyone really in a Western culture. They're living longer without disability, right? So those are two really huge pluses. and you know, they're not going to the grocery store. They're not following a diet the way we will follow a diet. And then, oh, you know, I'm off the wagon and now I'm like back to square zero, right? They're not doing New Year's resolutions. They're not doing any of that. They are eating for their ancestry, which you alluded to when we were talking about that. And they are also eating until they are no longer hungry, not until they are full. And that's a really hard thing for people to grasp It does get into that mindful eating. So eating until we're no longer hungry, that takes some practice. You have to chew more. You have to understand when you feel that absence of hunger versus the feeling of fullness, right? I mean, the example of filling up your gas tank is so cliche, but it really does bring down the point that if we're standing there and the gas is going in, once the gas tank clicks, it means the gas tank is full. And no one would stand there and say, well, I'm just going to keep filling it as it pours onto our shoes. But that's what we do when we overfuel. So really understanding, okay, how much fuel do I need to get me through the next four hours? 
What's my mileage look like and how much fuel do I need to get me there? Why would I fuel outside of that? That is such a hard concept to figure out. And it takes a long time to really master that. Yeah. And I think it's hard because we're not mindful. Forget eating. We're not mindful in general. And so when you're eating in front of a television or you got your phone in your hand and you're easily distracted, you're not tuning into your body. You're just focused on cleaning your plate so that you can go to continue your work or do the next thing. And this really requires you to disconnect from all distraction and to pay attention to what's going on inside. How do you feel when does that satiation point arrive? And then from there, decide, do I need to keep going or am I done even though there's still food on the plate? Right. And I think a lot of it also is unconscious as well, right? So it's like, again, if I if I go back to thinking about some of my patient stories, I had a patient that was really struggling with overeating at dinner time, And I said, well, tell me everything else that's going around. Well, the kids are usually like, you know, ticked off at me because I'm making them do their homework. I got the evening news on. So all these things, right? And I'm like, gosh, like, when I think about the evening news, I think the first 20 minutes are typically like, here's all the horrible things that happened today. And then the last 10 minutes are like, here's a great news story, right? So it's like, really, from an unconscious level, I think I could understand why someone would overeat when they are viewing and hearing what could be very stressful situations by having the nightly news there at their dinner table and not being able to regulate. So again, like I think we don't give ourselves the opportunity to delve deeper into why we're making that decision at that time. And then we also have to look at simplicity. Sometimes we overeat because food tastes good right? Or we're eating hyperpalatable foods and they have more addictive properties in nature that make it very difficult to stop eating that. And I always tell people there's a reason scientifically and physiologically why we can't stop eating a bag of potato chips, but we can easily stop eating a head of broccoli, yeah, right? So exactly. there's a reason for that. So like, uh, and then it takes, again, kind of figuring out those reasons is really what the dietary pattern is going to look like for you and and all the concepts that are fit within that. Great. So we talked about one myth being that you don't have to just have it be the same all the time. You don't have to do it perfectly, that you can kind of vary it up. Really, the key here is to just do the best you can with what you got. Yep. What's the next myth? You know, the next myth is really kind of looking at the foods that are trending and the superfoods and like having this concept that we have to add it in. So where I'm getting with this myth is that I oftentimes will have people that will come to see me. I've actually, it's hilarious. I've actually had like tons of people say this to me and I will say, okay, why are you here today? We'll always start with that. And they'll say, well, you know, I want to eat better and I know you're going to make me eat kale and I know you're going to take away my bacon, right? So we have this idea that like these things have to happen, the kale and the bacon in order for us to find health. And I'll often say, you know what, if you don't want to eat kale, that's great. Let's look at all the other green things that are out there. What do you like that's green? So I think the myth is sometimes that we have to have the pressure of following into these trends, whether that's kale or that's having more turmeric or coconut oil, but not realizing that it might not fit within our personal preferences. So there are studies that show that if we really tap into our personal preferences, our cultural preferences, and our religious preferences, we are more likely to find sustainability. I just put a post up yesterday on my Instagram feed talking about the difference between sustainable thoughts for dietary change and non-sustainable thoughts. 
So non-sustainable thoughts are like, okay, I know I got to eat this kale. I don't like it, but got to just get it down for my health. That is not sustainable. You will not continue on with that. So really, I think the myth is that we can't indulge in our preferences. We have to do whatever is trending or whatever we hear is the healthy thing to do. There are so many things that are healthy. So I think like really tapping into our individuality. And if we talk about the bacon, I, I will say to my patients, listen, if you love bacon, I'm not taking bacon away. I can tell you and rattle off multiple studies that talk about why you don't want to have an excess amount of it that are very strong studies. But if you want to have it on Sunday morning and that's it, it's not the Sunday morning bacon or donuts that's going to do you in for longevity. It's when it becomes the regular part of your diet. So figure out how you can add it in, enjoy it, don't feel guilt over it, and then we move on. So I think like that's the myth, like, okay, like I often get this question, like what are foods people should never eat? And I don't have anything on that list, right? So we have to stop looking at food as good or bad and look at it in a different manner, change our nutrition story so that we know, okay, there are foods that will help me and foods that will not help me as much. And I'm going to have those in that bucket a lot less. I love it. Okay. And finally, myth three. I think myth three is that exercise is the holy grail for weight loss. You know, there's a lot of myths we could cover just with weight loss. And exercise has a lot of benefits in terms of cardiovascular health, in terms of reducing our risk for cancer, especially breast cancer for women. You know all of these benefits. But when we look at overall, okay, I really want to lose weight, exercise does not have the strongest studies to show that that alone will do it. Oftentimes, what we know is that diet plays a much larger role and that exercise comes into play a larger role once we've lost weight and we can then keep our weight off, which is another challenge. So not to say, hey, you shouldn't exercise. But what I have seen in some of my patients is that they exercise, they end up eating more or they give themselves this concept of like, well, I worked out. So, yeah, I can have this second glass of wine. And then they're struggling with not being able to lose weight. Exercise is important for a lot of reasons, but when we're thinking about weight loss, again, let's change that story as well and think about it in terms of health, not in terms of vanity. Vanity is important, but it's not the most sustainable reason why we do it. And then let's kind of look at this concept of, okay, where does exercise fit into my health story? And it's not going to be the contributor to weight loss the way we think it is. It's more going to be the contributor to longevity and overall health. Fantastic. So we've talked about a lot of things today. We talked about taking things off your plate, prioritizing healthy eating. If you really want to make this happen, you're going to have to find the time for it. We talked about how to overcome all kinds of roadblocks to be realistic. We talked about mindful eating, sustainable thinking, changing your nutrition story, and the difference between health maintenance and weight loss. So there's lots of goodies in here. Kristen, for people who are interested in following you or working with you, where should they go? So my Facebook and Instagram feeds are the same, Fuel Well with Chrissy. Or they could go to my website, which is just my name, KristenKirkpatrick.com. Kristen spelled with an I. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here and sharing with us all of your wisdom. I know it's going to be inspirational for people who are struggling with healthy eating, but you know, it's always kind of in the back of our mind, something that we want to do. 
I hope if you're listening to this, that you take some of the nuggets that you've heard and that you start to create a little bit of a plan for how you can start to incorporate this into your everyday life. And of course, Kristen is available if you should need more handholding. For all of you thinkers out there, what did you think of the show? If you are a feeler, how did hearing this make you feel? And for all of you doers, what are you going to do based on what you've just heard? Regardless of what your personality code is, my goal is to spread the word that burnout is a unique experience. And by decoding it, you can find solutions that are equally unique to you. Help me spread this message by subscribing to the show on Apple or Spotify and leaving us a review telling us what you think, feel, or do differently because of the show. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can also leave me a comment or questions to answer in future episodes. And please recommend the show to anyone struggling with burnout. If you're ready to take the next step with me to decode your burnout, go to decodeyourburnout.com. I'll see you right back here next week. Take care.